Welcome to the Hotel News Now Podcast Network, part of the CoStar Group. This is the Next Gen in Lodging podcast, which examines trending issues in the hospitality industry, led by three hoteliers who are really shaking things up. In this episode, host Chris Henry has a conversation with guest Faraz Turkmani, a director and capital advisory firm Acme Ziff's Hospitality Division, and Adam Sulman, a principal at Equinox Hospitality, on the challenges of securing financing to buy, develop, and pip hotels. Thanks for listening and visit Hotel News Now for the latest industry news. Hello, my name's Chris Henry. I'm one of the co-hosts for Next Gen in Lodging. I'm here today with Adam and Firas, who uh, will be joining me in our discussion about financing for um, the current market and talking about how do we raise capital for new construction, for renovations and acquisitions. So Adam, would you mind just giving us a quick intro on, on yourself? Yeah, great to be here. Uh, Adam Sulman, Principal Equinox Hospitality. We're based in San Francisco, second generation family business. My father was a longtime uh, Hayek guy and he uh, rose the ranks there, moved all over the country like an army family. Uh, started in San Francisco, and then he uh, eventually relocated back here in the early 90s. I was with Hyatt and then left, started our company, partnered with Lehman Brothers to get the first deals going, and then we're off to the races. So today, uh, owner-operator, uh, we'll do other real estate as well, sort of a, a family office as, as well. So, And we're pretty active um, all over, fairly agnostic towards location and uh, and yeah, and we're on the move lately. We we just acquired four hotels a few months back, and um, hoping to keep growing. So, awesome, thank you. And Ferris, how about a little bit about you? Yeah, happy to introduce myself. Hey guys, my name is Faraz Turkmani. Uh, I've been there since July of 2014. Uh, find you know just in the capital markets, primarily in hospitality, um, closed around three and a half billion in that time, and really work across all on the capital stack, whether it be senior financing. Uh, preferred equity, subordinate capital, uh, even structured uh, sale leasebacks and ground leases, and really have seen that the markets evolve in, in the past, even, you know, six months to 12 months to 18 months, it really comes a snapshot of what time period everyone's looking at. So everything's ad hoc and uh, the firm does all other asset classes, but, you know, the hospitality business is around, you know, 12% of what makes up back in the Well, that's great. Well, thank you both again. And, you know, I sort of want to start off by mentioning, I shared with both of you that RCL Co. Uh, investor Sentiment Survey uh, report that came out uh, earlier this week. And generally speaking, the survey was like the sky is falling. But I know from from my end, on the development side, we're busier than ever. Um, with new projects coming in and inquiries. What is sort of your folks' take? What are you seeing and feeling? Is the sky falling or are people in hotels really still actively engaged? I uh, Do you want to go? Or, <clears throat> or I guess I'll jump in first. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really feel like the sky is falling. Today, for example, we're, we're putting in an offer on a property locally here in the Bay Area. And I was just talking to a broker about an hour ago. He said, typically, if this was about a year ago, they probably would receive 12 to 15 offers. Today, they're expecting around like six to eight. So I think it's always funny. I think there's always that difference between Main Street and Wall Street. Uh, it's definitely slower, but it's not a doomsday scenario. And in fact, I think the markets always have a way of reacting to these sorts of things, You know, macroeconomic effects of war, uh, inflation, um, et cetera. Right now, I think there's a slowdown. And in a few weeks ago, I was at the Hilton Owners Conference 
And Chris Aceta, who I think is a phenomenal industry leader, was talking about in his history of doing deals, these were the kind of environments that he, in fact, did the best deals on, you know, when you look at returns and, and appreciation. I think now sellers are finally starting to lower their, their pricing guidance. So it presents an opportunity for buyers like us to, to really get in there and try to get something on a good basis and hopefully make money over the long run. So I think now you just have to be disciplined. There still is a lot of overbloated stuff. Financing is very tricky. But I think at the end of the day, if you get a good basis on something, you know, the, the, the uh, two or three, you know, 100 basis points isn't going to make or break the deal. So, you know, there's still good opportunity out there in my perspective. Fierce, what, what's your take? Uh, being from New York right now and on Wall Street, what's, what's your feeling? I think the main issue that I was what I was discussing was uh, as it relates to liquidity, there is a lot of liquidity in the market. I just wanted to add on to what Adam said in that there's a lot of liquidity in the marketplace right now. It is simply a pricing exercise. And the question becomes, at what point are you underwriting, you know, expansion in the cap rates? And where do you expect takeout financing to be? Because at the end of the day, the 4% money is not going to be here for at least a little while, as indicated by the Fed. And therefore, people need to make underwriting adjustments accordingly. So there's still people getting deals done. It's just a re-underwriting and a repricing exercise. So, you know, I think between the three of us, we either all started our careers during or in the aftermath of the 08 crash. Do you feel like the playbook that they, the powers that be sort of reinvented in 08 still works today for helping boost, you know, economic stability and growth? Or do you think it's, it's run its course and we need to be looking at things a little bit differently today? In, in my perspective, it's, you're right. We all did start our, I mean, I worked at Starwood. I remember that was like the sky falling um, because people didn't know like in a year's time, you know, if the, if the banking system would exist, you know, and I, was, I remember being told by like money advisors to put, take your, 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 your cash out of the bank and like literally bury it. And that's like the like doomsday, like financial uh, advice. But I think today it's, it's a totally different uh, landscape. You're coming out of a, a, a global pandemic. You know, you have uh, the worst inflation probably over, you know, 40 years. The fundamental reasons for the last one, I think with subprime housing and, and sort of our, the, the, the sort of the stress test that the banking system can take, that doesn't really exist today. Janet Yellen was saying the other day, I mean, how strong our banking system is with regards to all that. I think what it comes down to more is there's been a lot of cans kicked down the road. You know, in COVID, you had a lot of lenders gave forbearance with loans and you had SBA PPV money. So now I think you're at a point where the bailouts are going to stop happening and the market might run its course a little more. And I think what that means is a lot of people who got deals done might be wiped out. But I think a lot of people who bought smart and got at a good basis, you know, they might have holding power. But you've seen a low amount of transactional volume these last couple of years, I think historically. And I think it'll start picking up now because there is a ton of money on the sidelines. Um, there's starting to be blood in the water, especially if you have floating, you know, interest. Um, and I think, you know, there's 2023 is probably going to be in my sort of prediction, one of the more uh, you know, high volume transactional years. I would also say that there's going to be a lot more recapitalizations over the next coming years because 
sometimes selling something won't make sense. You won't be able to clear a certain level, but new cash needs to be injected. So I'm working on a lot of recapitalizations where in lieu of a whole new senior loan and in lieu of a whole new stack, you're essentially keeping two of the three stools um, in place and then raising that third leg. So in that case, that could be through subordinate capital, either with MES or PREF, could be new equity with a preferred return. So there are multiple ways to skin the cat, which may prevent some from being fire sold and might help stall some of the lenders taking back assets. Do you feel, fierce that there will be much in the way of um, defaulting happening and, and banks stepping in? Um, or do you think people, like you're saying, they'll recapitalize, but... Um... Is anybody, do you feel like there's anybody who's going to be underwater um, at this point already? I mean, there's $24 trillion of office debt, CMBS debt that's maturing over the next three years uh, that were all done in 2012, 13, and 14. And they were all done at rates right before it really started to pick up. So they're 4% all in. And I think that sector is really in some deep trouble. And it's going to be like the class B mall where a majority of the stock just slowly fizzles out. But I think if you look at the hospitality sector, there really isn't any large you know, impeding factor going forward. Uh, even with a recession, there's still travels up. I mean, if you look at just airline volume, hotel check-ins, everything's up and it's only projected to continue with on the books uh, that you know other hotels have, have kind of seen already. But I think corporate travel is gonna lead into 2023 as more people try to get deals done creatively and there's less of a fear of COVID and staying at home. People are going to just get out on the road and do it. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that about office space because I've been really impressed even probably just prior to the pandemic and certainly moving forward right now, the number of office buildings I've seen either being converted into hotels or into multifamily. Um, whereas, you know, the other way around 12 years ago was, you know, they're taking hotels and turning them into multifamily or into offices. So it's just interesting how that cycle uh, works. In, in certain markets, like here in San Francisco, for example, granted, we have sort of a, a heavy tech you know, wing of the economy here, but I was with some office guys last week and something to the degree of like 30, 35% vacancy rate downtown right now. And the scary part though, is that they think that up to maybe 30, even 50% of some of the current tenants won't renew over the next couple of years. So it might not have bottomed out yet. The problem, though, is, in, is as you look at some of these buildings and the cost to do business in California is just so expensive. You know, it, something's got to give in the sense that it makes it there's an incentive to convert some of these buildings to maybe multifamily condos, hotel, whatever. Uh, but yeah, that 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 I think is more sort of isolated to markets like this or potentially, you know, New York or wherever it's high barrier to entry. Yeah, it's going to have to be working with municipal governments as well. I mean, there's no way just underwriting it, you know, without any form of incentive will work. There have to be government incentives for that to, to really make a, a dent. So what markets are you guys looking at right now? Um, you know, Ferris, from your end with, with clients coming in the door, whether it's for recapitalization or they're looking to acquire maybe not so much new development, but but what markets are you hearing a lot of chatter about? New York is a big one. Everyone's trying to figure out how to get into New York. Um, I think another market is obviously the Sun Belt. Um, but, you know, I think Florida is, is a little hot right now. I think a lot of people say that's, that's a little priced in. 
Uh, the Carolinas are really strong. I was working a deal in North Carolina, a lot of interests, um, both from a debt and equity perspective. Um, it really comes down to, I think, also the type of box. There are some that want to just go heavy on the full service. Um, they see arbitrage buying at under 100 a door for a full service box that replacement cost is, you know, 275 and above. And then there's some folks that are going heavy away from that and doing heads and beds, uh, doing very minimal F&B operations. But market-wise, I think I've seen a pullback from California, uh, especially just given the environment there. And even some markets like in, in D.C., there's been some headwinds uh, in the local government side about certain implications for labor law and, and, and the treatment of housekeepers, for example. And Adam, how about on your end, you know, looking when you're looking from an equity perspective side, um, what kind of markets and perhaps what kind of deals are catching your attention right now? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, in a nutshell, we're fairly agnostic towards location, but I, I am more keen on uh, markets that have, you know, various demand generators, but heavy on leisure transient. I, because maybe I'm in California, I'm, I'm bullish on California, meaning, you know, a lot of people, I think over the country like to bang up on California because, you know, our COVID restrictions were very, they're probably some of the strictest in the country. And, and as a result, a lot of commerce kind of died out and they're, there's always been this sort of media kind of headline about, um, uh, you know, the exodus of California. But the fact of the matter is this, you know, recently it just came out, California's GDP is up. And we just surpassed Germany. So it's the fourth biggest economy in the world. It's a massive, massive economy and therefore opportunity. I think for the first time, I think what's prevented a lot of investors from, from getting into California is the cost. I, I, I Now I'm starting to see a lot of, you know, hotels historically trade at some really, you know, low values. And so I think down the road, you know, you're right now, it's kind of lagging, certainly on the ADRs and occupancies, but I think down the road, it's hard to count California out. And so uh, I'm pretty, you know, eager to find opportunities, both in Northern and Southern California. Um, you have a tremendous amount of leisure transient markets, Napa, Palm Springs, you know, et cetera, San Diego, it goes on. So um, it all depends on the cost. And I finally think you're starting to see that go down. Aside from that, though, I, I, you know, I, I, we've done stuff in Hawaii and Hawaii, I think, has always been fairly strong. I think a lot of the markets that have really grown a lot in the last two years have had that sort of lax COVID restriction, high leisure transient mix. So a lot of the South American kind of Caribbean countries, I'm, I'm seeing pretty hot. I'm seeing a lot of these sort of high end, all inclusive resorts um, catch a lot of people's eye, uh, you know, all from Peru and in Mexico and all Central America and, and the Caribbean. So um, those I think are really, you know, kind of interesting opportunities. And then finally, I think Texas, we've done a lot in uh, Dallas particularly, but Texas economy is also very strong and robust. And, um, you know, you have a tremendous amount of commerce, you know, leisure transient isn't like gangbusters in Texas. I mean, aside from like Austin, for example, but, but I think you have a tremendous amount of uh, corporate base and as corporate comes back, that I think is where you're going to see it tick the most. It's interesting when you bringing up Texas, we're actually doing two large uh, resort development projects in Texas right now. Um, and the market is, is hungry for it. So I think I agree with I you. Agree. I think, you know, not to write off California, but certainly there are other markets that are, are uh, hot at the moment. Yeah. So well, it comes you know, down to timeline too, right? I think it comes down to what's your investment horizon. Right, because you could you could arguably pick any city and, and really dive into it, knowing that ten years from now it's going to be better. The question is, what is the next you know one to 
to two years look like on a micro basis? And I think that's what's shaping a lot of the investment decisions today, knowing that a two-year treasury is four and a half percent. So that yeah. drives a lot of the investment decisions. Do I buy a resort for a four cap when I have labor issues and costs are going up and I can only push ADR so much? Or do I kind of pivot into lower cost operations for the time being can kind of yield 10 to 11 caps even on some of these buys um, and ride out even some type of cap rate expansion and be okay. I've heard a lot of multifam guys talk about that because in, on the, in the apartment world right now, it's very hard to get yield. So a lot of them are pivoting to the extended stay, low cost kind of arena, you know, mid-scale kind of stuff. So totally correlates with what you just said. And, you know, for, again, for much of our generation, um, being sort of younger entrepreneurs and such, you know, interest rates have been near zero for most of that time. Um, and for our generation, you know, seeing interest rates where they are now is is really the first time in our careers we've had to deal with it. How do you think, or how would you approach, or what tools would you use to help get that paradigm shift going that, you know, high interest rates, They've happened before, they'll happen again, but how do we how do we learn to live with them and continue to keep deals moving forward? I mean, they're not that high. If you really look at it historically, if you take 0809 after it, the reason they're cheap is because of 0809 and nobody wanted to start raising them. And even when you had some type of threatening of raising it, i.e. 2015 to 17, the market pulled back, back hard. So I remember in 2015 to 17, you know, there was a threat of rising rates at that time. Time. And then the Fed got dovish too quick. And then if you look from 17 to arguably 19, right before the pandemic, there was a huge pop that only got even crazier on valuations after the pandemic. So I think, you know, a sustained level of 5% as a Fed fund rate is healthy. And I think if you ask that even my parents, grandparents, I mean, they were buying homes with 11, 12, 13%, and it was normal. So we've just been in an era of free money. And that really boasted the tech side more than anybody else. Real estate obviously took advantage of it, but it's best positioned to weather a higher interest rate environment than borrowing zero and you know hoping for large valuation growth. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, I think now it just forces you to have better fundamentals when you approach deals. I think a lot of deals had such narrow margins and such aggressive cap rates from like you know 2013 to 19. Now, I think, you know, you, there's a little bit more of a conservative nature coming into play. I think it's not kind of just let it ride sort of mentality a little bit. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, like I said earlier, if, I, I think if something pencils at a 7 or 8% interest rate now, for example, it's, it's got to fundamentally be the basis and the actual value add opportunity and the execution and the game plan. Um, I don't think the interest rate should be the reason a deal is, is made or broken, for example. And what kind of, let's say, an IRR on a project, what would you guys be looking for, say, limited service versus full service in, in going forward? That's a tough question to ask because, you know, if you're not penciling a refinance in that whole period, then what are you doing? Because you're going to refinance in 18 months. So, if, you know, at some point, whether that's a cash neutral refinance and yet you can kind of, you know, just kind of cap the cost of rising rates or whatever the floating rate cost may be. I think you're going to see a lot of permanent takeouts, take out some of that bridge money that got cut today. Um, um, but 
a lot of folks are really looking, what's my cash on cash? What's my, what's my, what's my equity returns, you know, annually versus an IRR? Because at this point, who knows what cap rates are? It's impossible to tell, but I know what a cash on cash can look like. Yeah. You have a changing landscape every day. I was talking to a couple of private equity firms last week and they were basically saying they're not even modeling refi scenarios anymore. They're just looking to exit in three years. And that's kind of how they devise their IRR because they need to, but but it's true. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like every day something changes every day, something different. It's as volatile as I've ever seen it. So I think, yeah, it, it comes down to the cash on cash, which I totally agree with. And, and the sort of basic fundamentals of, you know, what your returns will look like in the near term. Adam, have with the hotels that you folks currently own, have you been exploring doing any renovation or PIP work? And if so, has financing been available for that or has it been difficult for you? Um, it, we are doing it. And I think, I think a lot of that comes down to the relationship we have with our lender. But, you know, when we had our loan docs originate, for example, we, we could do takeouts and, and that kind of thing. I think lenders do understand that you're not just taking the money and squandering it. You're, you're making the properties better and therefore over time, increasing the top line and bottom line revenue. So it's just part of the, the, the story of, of turning things around. I think once you buy something, you can't be scared to renovate it because that was the business plan all along. And, and there's value in that. Um, kind of like you had said earlier, you're as busy as ever on the ground upside. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of owners and a lot of people are doing renovations and, and kind of ramping things up, even though inflationary costs, labor issues, because um, a lot of the brands are also putting a lot of pressure on to do that as well. So I'm not seeing a huge slowdown in that area. I've seen actually a good pickup of the hotel to multi conversion. In fact, that's kind of driving almost 40% of my book going into 23, where hotel PIP is, I don't know, 35 to 50K a door makes no sense. I'd actually rather go and put in 90 a door and make it a multifamily building. And I know I can rent that out in 90 days because of the demand in the area at 14 to 1600 a month or under three bucks a foot. And I think there's a deep market for that. There's the dearth of that. And it costs too much to just build from scratch and do the whole nine yards. And it's going to take too long. Whereas you can convert a hotel with exterior corridors into a multifamily building in 12 months on a good day. Yeah, I know everybody's been trying to get rid of those exterior corridors out of their portfolios for a while now. It's, uh, again, they had to it works for multifamily. Yeah. Um, it's, so actually, tell me, it's actually a hunting ground for multifamily, actually, for a lot of these guys. They, they just specifically want exterior corridors because it makes it better. It, yeah, it's an easier renovation at that point or conversion, I should say, at that point. So tell me a little bit about, I guess, the process, Ferris, right now that you want people to or recommend people go through when they're trying to secure debt financing? What Are there any critical steps or milestones you say, you know, guys, put a lot of extra effort or time into this to get your plan right? What do you, what do you recommend? I mean, the business plan, and it goes without saying, needs to be ironclad. And you got, you got to be confident on your numbers and build in at least 10% contingency on any costs. But I think the first order of business is what, what are you underwriting? If you're underwriting debt at 5%, you should put the pencils down. It, it's seven to start with because that's how much it is for a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, barring you know anyone inside of the market given relationships with lenders, which I would highly recommend if you have those. But you know most 
folks who come and say, you know, I have this lender at this rate, we say, okay, then you should go ahead and pull it. And they say, well, they want to explore the market. And I say, well, you know, really comes down to what do you really want here? Because you're going to have to be paying at least seven and a half plus percent. And your leverage is going to be in the 60 to 65 cents range. So I think, you know, underwriting a larger interest reserve is for sure huge. Um, call it, you know, 12 months, especially if you're doing a renovation, you want to have something when you're coming out of it. And understanding as well, like who's the guarantor of that construction or development loan if you're going to do a renovation, because many of the lenders now, it's not as good enough as saying, you know, non-recourse, except for bad boy carve-outs, they want you on completion and carry guarantees, especially for larger renovations. So it's important to look out for those things and the strength of the guarantor. So Adam, same question to you, but from an equity perspective, when what 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 should people focus on or what areas do you see could potentially be sort of pitfalls for, for developers or, or buyers right now trying to source equity for hotel projects? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I, uh, basically now I, you can't get the high leverage points maybe like you used to. So definitely the interest are, because we've done that recently too. You just need more equity in the game. So you're not really like a 70% LTV. You're now you're at like a 50 to 60% you know, LTV and your, your numbers have to be a lot stronger because you know, the deals, you know, become a lot more conservative in a sense. So I think for, on the investment perspective, understanding you have less leverage, but still weighing things like your five-year cash on cash and your IRR, um, despite some of the headwinds, because there still are a lot of tailwinds um, despite that. So, you know, like you said, sort of gangbuster travel right now. Um, you know, I, you know, one thing that stuck in my mind is, is Chris Nassetta said this at the Hilton Owners Conference recently, that a lot of people were just at home buying stuff on Amazon and other places throughout the pandemic. Now that that's kind of done, in a sense, they want to get out and travel. And I don't think that's going to wane off for a while. So I think a lot of the fundamentals for the hospitality industry are sound, despite some of the sort of macroeconomics that all sort of asset classes in real estate are facing. Um, but it just comes down to the basics, I think, you know, like when you when you first started doing real estate, you know, the simple kind of graphs and bars and models that we would use. Now it's hard to kind of pinpoint to kind of tricks in a way with financing or or other things. So, I mean, that, that's kind of what I look at, just, you know, w- what the actual, you know, dollars and cents look like. The you know, operating model was also changed, by the way, in terms of how hotels are operated post-pandemic and pre-pandemic. So looking at operating margins in 2017 and 18 are going to be less relevant than operating margins from 2021. Yeah, no, that's totally right. I'm sorry to interrupt. I, we, we're paying 20 to 30% more on labor. Uh, a lot of our utilities costs, operating costs, they're all a lot higher now. Um, so you have to be really, really keen on how to manage that, especially, you know, in the last six months when costs have probably been as high as they've ever been. You know, it's it's interesting that you guys both brought up about contingencies. You know, for our development projects, we've actually started building in what I call sort of double contingencies is we have a contingency on the hard costs, and then we have a contingency on the project as a whole, um, just because of market volatility. And um, I learned a long time ago, it's better to uh, to ha- to ask for more upfront than have to go back and ask for more later, uh, which I have a feeling a lot of people have run into with the commodities lately for, for raw materials. Yeah, wise words. <laughs> well, 
I know we're, we're coming up to our, our end here of our half hour segment. Any final words of wisdom right now as we, you know, transition here from 2022 to 2023, any, any words of wisdom for, for our uh, listeners and viewers? You know, I, for me, I'm just an eternal optimist. Uh, so I, uh, I, you know, I always want to encourage people that, you know, better days lie ahead. There's going to be a lot of great opportunity in 2023, I think, um, you know, be positive and, and, you know, we've been through a lot as an industry and as a country these last few years. Um, and it's, and it's, it's amazing to see certain markets recover and come back and it makes me really happy. And, you know, I'm just, uh, hopeful that 2023 will be a fun year because we're not comparing things to the pandemic anymore. We actually have a, a real year to reflect on data points, 2022. That's very true. Ferris, any, any uh, words of wisdom? You know, I love transactional volume and the, the, the years leading up to 19 when everyone was complaining about when the next recession would be are over. And the days of, like you said, Adam, the pandemic are over. Now we're in a period of what are you looking at for the next 10 years? Let's think future-wise and not keep comparing to the past. So I, I'm very optimistic. I think there's more money today than there ever was. And everyone's smarter today than they were before, and they learn from their past mistakes. So deals are just created and structured a lot, a lot stronger today. So that's uh, it's a positive thing. Perfect. Well, gentlemen, thank you both for uh, participating on our latest edition of Next Gen in Lodging. Uh, to our viewers and listeners, I want to uh, apologize for the technical difficulties. Uh, Zoom's platform seems to be a little unstable today for both audio and video. Um, apologize for that, but we will be uh, back up to full speed for the next episode. Uh, Adam and Fierce, thank you so much and uh, appreciate your time. Thank you both. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the Hotel News Now Podcast Network. Make sure to subscribe on Apple or Spotify for more. And visit hotelnewsnow.com for more hospitality industry news.